your Bibles and turn to John chapter 19, Matthew chapter 27, a couple of passages that you'll find in your worship uh, folder uh, in the, on the outline that's in your worship folder if you'd like to follow along. We're looking at words from the cross, the last words of Jesus, and again, I've been doing this every week. I've got a whole book full of these last words, so we got at least one more week where you get to hear some of the last words of famous or maybe even not so famous, famous people. Um, I just watched uh, Darkest Hour. I don't know if any of you have seen the movie The Darkest Hour about Churchill. It's an excellent, excellent film, historical film. Sir Winston Churchill's last words is, I'm bored with it all. Come to that. Uh, George Orwell, the author of 1984, uh, his last words were, at 50, everyone has the face he deserves. Uh, he died at 46, by the way, so he didn't quite make it there. There's this actor on a, a, a show that uh, was on when I was younger called Barney Miller, which I, I liked a lot. It made me get cracked up. There's this character on there, a guy named Jack Sue, who in the context of the show, made really bad coffee. Craig is really with me. Thanks, Craig, for connecting here. Uh, made part of the police office that they were in, the precinct was, they always made fun of his coffee uh, because it was so bad. And uh, later in life, Jack Sue uh, developed actually esophageal cancer. And his last words before he was going into um, surgery was, it must have been the coffee uh, that he... Charles Gussman was a TV announcer. He wrote the pilot episode for Days of Our Lives. I never watched Days of Our Lives, but some of you may have. Uh, but he was an announcer, and his last words were, and now a word from our sponsor, which I thought was pretty clever. Harriet Tubman, her last words were, swing low, sweet chariot. Uh, she was singing with her family, which uh, seems very, very appropriate. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, he lay dying at the age of 84. His daughter um, told him to change positions in bed so he could breathe more easily, and Franklin's last words were, a dying man can do nothing easy. Johnny Ace was an R&B singer who died in 1954 while playing with a pistol during a break in his concert set. His last words were, I'll show you that it won't shoot. That sounds like the famous last words of every uh, redneck, doesn't it? Hey, Bubba, watch this. Uh, so, yeah. I thought that was funny. Uh, Emily Dickinson, as only an author could, says, I must go in for the fog is rising. Much more poetic than I think I'm going to be thinking of it, uh, at the end. Final words can be revealing. Uh, Jesus' last words from the cross, we've looked at these uh, some of these, there are seven last words or seven last sayings that Jesus proclaims while he is on the cross. And the traditional order of these, though they're from different Gospels, is Luke 23, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Luke 23 also says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. John 19, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Matthew 27 and Mark 15. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John 19, I thirst. Also in John 19, it is finished. 
And finally, Luke 23, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. We've looked at the first three of these. Father, uh, excuse me, first two. Father, I forgive them for they know not what they do. And truly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Today, I want to I look at the middle three. Uh, the middle three, which uh, begin with um, mother, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And I thirst and thought, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want to look at those three now. Uh, this is a lot to fight off in one sermon on Sunday morning. Uh, there's a lot of rich theology here, and I'm, I, I, I am going to teach a little bit of the theology of this passage, these passages, and then I want to apply them to our lives. So uh, this morning's going to be a little different, not as many funny stories, sorry, uh, just a little depth theologically, so just hang in there. I think it'll be really good. I, I believe it will be because it is so rich and so impactful for for our lives. So let's look at this passage. And what I've done is I've broken it down kind of in the traditional order that it comes. John, and then the Matthew passage, and then back to John. You'll see what I mean. So here's kind of the historical view of where these passages fall. So starting in John 19, verse 25 through 27. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple, this disciple, took her into his home. In Matthew, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then back in John, later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked it, a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. In these passages, we see the full humanity of Jesus on display as he suffered on the cross. We know in our theology that he was both fully God and fully man. And in this moment, we see him in incredible pain. We see him suffering knowing that he's about to die and the relationship with his mother. He, he cares for his family. We see the family relationship. We see him suffering physically. Uh, we see him uh, suffering spiritually because of all that's taken place. And so I just want to look at these three passages and then move forward kind of with some practical application. So in the first passage from, from John, we have Jesus looking down from the cross and saying to his mother and to John, John is the one, the disciple, John doesn't use his own name. He said the disciple Jesus loved. So he sees John, and by the way, this is important because John has come back to the cross. John, you know, all his disciples scattered, but now John has, has come back and Mary is there. And so he looks at Mary and he said, dear woman, here is your son. And then here is your mother, he says to John. 
Now, why is this important? I think it's important that there is a practical application of the gospel. Don't ever think that the gospel is just some thought that doesn't affect how we live life. I believe it does. And I think in this passage, there is a truth that's really, really important. And, and Jesus has said this throughout his ministry, and it is this. When you come a part of the family of faith, actually, that tie is stronger than any other tie that could possibly imagine. It, it, he, remember when his mother and brothers come to him? And they say, hey, your mother and brothers are outside. They were really coming to take him away because they thought they didn't know what all was going on. And he said, who, who's my brother? Who, who is my brothers? And his implication is, these are my brothers. Now, for some of us, we react a little bit when we say, look, does this mean, does this mean that the gospel is more important than my family? Here's what I would say. The gospel is more important than anything. I mean, anything. It's not negating us caring for our physical family. But I'm, I think Jesus in this, because remember, um, Jesus had physical brothers. He had physical brothers that could have taken care of the mother. But instead, we don't know if they're, follow, we don't know if they're following him at this point. Uh, we know later that they will be, but we don't at this point know if his physical brothers are following. So he's saying, John, Take care of my mom. Mom, go with John. And it says that's what happened. From that day on, she came and was cared for by, by John. In the second passage, uh, we have this incredible, rich, deep, challenging passage where Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, how many of you took like a religion 101 class in college? Any, any of you take like a, a religion 101, especially if you went to a secular or semi-secular university, one of the things you would have learned in religion 101, or probably your professor tried to tell you, as, is that the gospel narratives were created much later by some guys who were trying to make up a religion that people could follow. They, they cite the... the physical gap of the number of years between when it happened and when the first gospel accounts were written to say that it, it wasn't really true. It's really mythological. Uh, so they try to get us to doubt what has taken place. And here's one of the things. If I were to make up a religion and I was going to have the founder of that religion be crucified and die, I would not have had him say this. In other words, one of the things that this is accurate to me is that this is such a challenging word in, in, a, in a difficult time that you would say this isn't made up. There's something significant here. In other words, the, this word from the cross to me gives veracity to the gospel and to what has taken place. Martin Luther once stared at these words for hours then rose from his seat and exclaimed, God forsaken by God, how can it be? You see, Jesus was fully God, fully man, but in this moment, all the, all the sin of mankind, past, present, and future, 
was being placed upon him. It was like a laser focus of sin being placed on Jesus on the cross. So, what do these words mean? And I have to say, it, 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 these are challenging words that I don't fully understand. And no matter how much I read, I have to come to a place of faith because there's this gap between what I can explain and what took place on the cross, a mystery aspect to it. But let me give you some, some things I do believe about these words from Jesus on the cross that I think will help us. Uh, the first is this. Jesus fulfilled prophecy. You're like, well, wait a minute, why is this? Why is this prophetic? This is an exact quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. Psalm 22, verse 1, which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words of David from that psalm. And I would say this. If you go and you read that psalm to someone, just don't tell them where it's from. Just go and say, I'm going to read you this passage from the Scripture, and you tell me where it's from. Most people would come away saying, well, somewhere in the New Testament, because it's obviously about Jesus. That's how impactful this psalm is. Later in the psalm, it says, listen to this, in Psalm 22, verse 16 through 18, it says, They pierce my hands and my feet. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. It speaks, this passage in Psalm speaks of the crucifixion really a thousand years before it happens to Jesus. In, in, incredibly, crucifixion hasn't even been invented yet when this psalm is written. It was hundreds of years before the Phoenicians invented the whole torturous exercise known as crucifixion. And then it was years after that the Romans adopted it for their form of capital punishment. There is a way in which, I believe Jesus purposefully chooses this passage uh, to point toward his fulfillment of what David says. Because when David says these things, they obviously don't apply to him. Even though he's talking in first person, these things didn't happen to him. There's a prophetic element that's fulfilled when Jesus says these words. Second, Jesus became our sin. He becomes our sin. Before the cross, Jesus, the Son, and God, the Father, were one. They, they have existed in perfect fellowship for eternity past, up until this moment. And, and Jesus declares this intimacy with God that had never been heard before. You know, we've talked about this in the past, where in, in the Jewish literature, the Old Testament and even up until the time of Christ, the name of God was so holy, they would never even really speak his name. Or write. I mean, for Jesus to come and say, God is Father. When you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. There's that intimacy. We can call him Daddy, Abba, Father, according to Romans. For, this is the first time where we see Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a formalism here that's taking place, something is happening on the cross that is radically different than anything Jesus has experienced in the eternity past up until this moment. And as he approaches death, 
He takes, as we've seen last week, all the sins of the world onto himself. He becomes the atonement for our sins. He's paying the price for our sins. In Romans, again, we looked at it last week, but in Romans, it says that the wrath of God is toward sin. His anger, because God is holy, his wrath is turned toward sin. And now Jesus is, is paying the price for that atonement, for that sin. He's, that's what it means to make atonement. Listen to these passages. Isaiah 53 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. He became sin for us. This week I saw a quote, uh, the difference between karma and Christianity. Uh, karma is, the quote goes like this, karma, you get what you deserve. Christianity, Jesus gets what you deserve. Uh, the price of sin had been placed. He becomes our sin. And, and this transaction that takes place happens when we come to know Jesus. Uh, because of the cross, he became sin and we become holy. Jesus was cursed. We get blessed. Jesus was sentenced for a crime he did not commit so that we can be declared forgiven of all the transgressions we have against a holy God. Jesus died so that we could live. I mean, it is an incredible moment on the cross. And then, finally, in some sense, God the Father turns away. Uh, God the Father turns away. It says in Habakkuk 1.13 that God's eyes are too pure to look on evil. And all the evil of the human race, as I said, was concentrated like a laser beam focus on Jesus at that moment. And in some sense, in some way, God the Father turns, turns away. I don't understand it. I don't understand how there could be a schism in the Holy Trinity. You know, it, when it comes right down to it, I have trouble explaining the Holy Trinity. So uh, most of us do words fall short at some point, and I can do it, but at some point, faith still has to take over. And at this moment, there is this because of sin and the curse that's been placed on Jesus. We'll look at the implications of that in just a minute. Then back in John, we have a third word for the day, which is where Jesus says, I thirst, or I am thirsty. The, uh, in the Greek, it's really just one word, uh, dipso, D-I-P-S-O. It's just one word, which means I am thirsty, or I thirst. And one of the implications of this is that God can relate to us, Jesus can relate to us because he too suffered. Whatever suffering we're going through physically, emotionally, spiritually, we can see it all on Jesus on the cross at this moment. The suffering that's occurring. Again, listen to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, that psalm where Jesus said, quotes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in verses 14 and 15 of Psalm 22, it says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. 
My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Another passage from the psalm, Psalm 69, 21, says, They gave me vinegar for my thirst. There's a fulfillment of the psalmist's words in Jesus' physical thirst. John adds an interesting aspect to this passage as well when he says that they dipped the sponge in vinegar and they placed it on the hyssop plant. Uh, I don't know if you recall, but the hyssop plant was the plant that they dipped in the lamb's blood and then put over the doorposts of their home for Passover. So in the original Passover, they, they dipped a hyssop plant in the lamb's blood, put it over so that the angel of death would pass over their homes and they would be saved. And on this Passover, Jesus becomes the ultimate Passover lamb to save us from our sins so that death, ultimate death, passes over us. All of this to me is not just symbolic and prophetic and meaningful, it is real. And that's where the gospel hits us. We could study it, and it's intriguing, and, and it, it moves us, but it should really move us because of the reality of it. And here's the question, is it real to you? Is it truth to you? Other than just a good man being killed up here on a cross where some bad people killed a man who didn't deserve it, is there more to this than that? And I would claim absolutely so much more. And, and it's where I want to hit us. You may be a follower of Jesus Christ this morning already, and I, and I want to bring us back to the cross because the gospel impacts how we live how we relate to our family, how we relate to one another. So let me look at some practical implications of this for us. Where do we come from with these passages? <clears throat> First is this, count the cost of your sin. Count the cost of your sin. It says in 2 Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. <clears throat> Let's talk about before we come to know Christ and after we come to know Christ to count the cost of our sin. We don't even know the devastating effect that sin has had on our lives. It, it is hard for us because we're so steeped in sin, we don't even really understand how devastated we really are. Uh, I, I just read um, this past week about the capital of Mongolia, which is where I think Jen was before she went to China. Wasn't she in the capital? Uh, Ulaanbaatar, however you say it, I can't even say it, is now the most polluted capital in all of the world. All of the world. The air pollution there is 133 times the healthy level. Um, children are suffering in the capital 
um, uh, their lung capacity for many, many children is 40% less than those who live out in the countryside. They are, they're seeing genetic defects in women who are carrying babies because of the air pollution. Uh, respiratory illness, the number of deaths, it's, it's becoming overwhelming. It's reaching a, a critical crisis level. And here's the deal, people are still moving there because they feel like, oh, it's, it's better than living out here. And, and they interviewed this one family and they're like, you know, we just, we didn't, we didn't know. And we couldn't really tell until we looked at the effects on one of our children. In other words, they're breathing in this junk that's killing them and they don't even know it. And to me, that is the effect of sin on our lives. It, it is so breathed into and a part of us that we don't, we, we just, we think this is the way it's supposed to be. It is not the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus so desires for us to live in a relationship with God that he went to the cross and that allowed all the sin. He became sin for us. He had no sin. He became a curse for us so that why? We could become right in God's sight. It, it, it should lead us to a place of saying, I want to be in relationship with God. And then after the cross, it should take us to a place where we aren't guilty, but at the same time, we don't say, you know, it really doesn't matter how I live. Jesus paid the price already. Look what it took for the price to be paid on the cross. It should move us to say, I want to live a right life. Not that I have to, but that I want to. It, count the cost of sin. Count the cost of sin. A second point is this. Consider the love of your Savior. Consider the love that, that Jesus didn't go there out of legalism. He went there out of love. John says in 1 John 4, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Great. How do we know that? Well, he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The cross is in some ways God's love letter to us. I mean, it's an ugly letter in the sense of, if you've ever seen the passion of the Christ, it, I'm sure it doesn't even come, maybe it comes close. I don't really know, but it's brutal. But it's God's love for us that sent Jesus there. Jesus willingly went to the cross because God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. The cross should make us consider all of these passages about the mother and son and uh, I, why have you forsaken me? And I, They should make us realize what it cost Jesus on the cross and how much God loves you. Now, for some of you, this is, this is really important because we think of God's love in the abstract, but not in the personal. In other words, we think of God's love kind of like, oh, yeah, 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 God loves, God loves. So, listen, I want to tell you this, God loves you. Don't, don't, don't think that you're not worthy of the love of God. Because here's the truth. If that were the case, none of us is worthy of the love of God, and yet he loves us anyway. So whatever you've gone through, whatever you've done that has been messed up, no matter how badly you've screwed up your life, I want to tell you this, God still loves you. God loves you. Consider the love of the Savior. Third is this, 
come and drink from, from living water. From living water. Jesus is crucified during the feast of Passover. During the spring. Around this time. During the feast of Passover, which moves around in the Jewish calendar depending on the moons and all that's taking place. That's why Easter is at a different time every year. But anyway, it's one of the three major feasts in Judaism. One of the other major feasts happens in the fall, and it's known as the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles. It happens during harvest time, and it really celebrates a couple of things. One, it celebrates the harvest, the bringing in of the harvest. And it's called Feast of Tabernacles because it really celebrates how God delivered the nation of Israel through the desert and their time of wandering and gave them the promised land. Hence, the tents are tabernacles. So during the fall, the whole, as many as could would storm into Jerusalem and they'd have tents set up all over the city in every open park. I mean, this is, this is like a religious kind of Woodstock. I mean, there are people everywhere in the city just jammed into every corner in tents. It was one of their favorite celebrations. It was one of the ones that was really fun that happened for eight days. And one of the significant aspects that happened in the Feast of Tabernacles is each day the, the people would gather at the temple and they'd be carrying branches and fruit kind of as a symbol of the harvest because remember there's harvest and the wandering. And the high priest would take a pitcher, a, a bowl or a pitcher, and they would walk from the temple to the Pool of Siloam. And at the Pool of Siloam, the, the, the priest would dip the pitcher into the water, and all the people would quote from Isaiah that says, With joy you draw water from the well of salvation. Then they would march back to the temple where an altar had been built, and the priest would march around the altar one time, and then he'd walk up and he'd pour the water out on the altar. The highlight, the climax of the whole celebration at the Feast of Tabernacles is on the, the final day, he would go through the same process, and he would march down, the people would follow him with, Joy, we draw water from the well of salvation. He'd march back up, and this time he'd march around seven times. Like, anybody? Jericho. Like Jericho. So they're, they're really symbolizing all that's taken place and moving from the time of tabernacles when they were in the desert into taking the promised land. And he would hold the water up, and the people would yell, Hold it higher! hold it higher, and he'd reach higher, hold it higher, they'd scream, and the whole crowd is screaming and yelling, and the priest, the high priest would hold it as high as he could, and then there would be this silence that goes across the crowd, and it's at this moment earlier that Jesus lifts his voice and says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. 
Jesus took this moment at the climax in the Feast of Tabernacles to say this, I am that water. I am that living water. Paul goes on in, in Corinthians and says that the rock that Moses struck in the desert was Jesus. I don't know if you, you get this. This is unbelievable. Really? That the rock that is Jesus on the cross is being struck. The one who says, I thirst, is thirsting so that he can provide living water for every single one of us. And, and what do we have to bring to him? Our thirst. We, we have nothing to offer. He paid the price so that we could drink. Our, our call is to come to him and drink. And then he goes on and says this, if you come to me and drink, you'll never thirst again. And I'm going to the, the Spirit of God is going to be placed within you so that out of you, streams of living water will flow. Come and drink. Come and drink from living water. And to me, this should lead easily to the last point, which is this. Commit to a life of gratitude. Commit to a life of gratitude. If someone... I don't know, let's say you were in the army and someone died, took a bullet for you. I mean, you would be forever grateful to them. You'd probably be a little guilty as well, but you'd be forever grateful to them for what they did. Jesus took it all on himself. We should lead lives of constant gratitude. Here's, here's, here's my thought here. John says this, greater love has no one than this, than someone lays down their life for one's friend. Jesus laid down his life for us. Greater love has no one than this, that what Jesus did on the cross for us. My thought is this, what, 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 do, what do we really have to gripe about? I mean, the enemy's tactic is this. Look, yeah, 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 yeah. Jesus loves you. He saved you. But if he really loved you, you'd have that car. Or you'd have that house. Or you would have no problems. You'd never get sick. Or this would happen, or that would happen, or that would happen. If God really loved you, your life would be just smooth. As a matter of fact, Jesus said just the opposite. In this world, you will have trouble. Trouble. You're going to have tribulation. Why? Because we're still in this kingdom battle. We're still battling against all the things of the effects of sin. God's kingdom has come, but there's a not yet aspect to it as well, where we're living between the times, between the inauguration of God's kingdom and the fulfillment of it. And in this period, there is this tension that's always there. Some of us, we, we move to the tension of God hasn't done anything for us. And I, and I want to say that is simply not true. God could not have shown his love in a bigger way than this, that Christ died for you. 
It should, it should affect the way we lives our, live our lives. We should, with joy, draw water from the well of salvation. It should affect the way we live. Paul says like this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, because of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This passage, as rich as it is, it should, it should help us to live holy lives in the sense of we, we, we count our sin. We understand the effects, the price that had to be paid for our sin. It should help us to, to in a better way, consider the love of Jesus Christ, to really receive it and walk in it. It, it, should, it should drive us to say, God, I want a drink. Just fill me up to overflowing. And it should help us live lives of thankfulness and worship because it's what makes sense. It's reasonable. In light of the cross, it's reasonable. We're going to come to the table of the Lord. We're going to come to this communion, this common union, communion. And I want you to think of taking of the living water when you come to the table. In, in John 4, Jesus says to them, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty. He's talking to the woman at the well here. He says to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Not too much later, Jesus feeds some crowds and they're talking about following him and is he going to give us some more food? And he's, he's, he's got a big crowd that's coming after him uh, because he's feeding them. And he turns to the crowd and he says to this, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him, just as the living waters, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. In many ways, the Lord's table is a reenactment of this reality of receiving the body and blood of Jesus into ourselves. It's the reality of what occurred on the cross, that because his blood was shed, I have forgiveness. Because his body was broken, we who were many are now one. When this week, this time occurs, it should drive us. The cross is not something, it's a scorn and a shame to those who are perishing, but to thus, us who are being saved, it, it's wonderful. Today, when you come to the cross, receive what God has for you. Come, and I want to say come and drink in the sense of receive the water of life that Jesus, I know there's a lot of imagery here, but the truth is this, we should be changed. 
let change occur. Let God's presence change you and your life. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to come to the table of the Lord. If you're new to fullness, um, you're wel- if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're welcome to come and participate with us. The middle sections will come down the middle aisle. We'll have elders and who will be distributing uh, the outside section down the outside aisle. Uh, take it and go back to your seats, and then we'll take it together as one body, as a kind of the truth that we are one. Then, following communion, if you need prayer, we're going to have ministry teams here at the front and the back. Mitch is going to lead us in worship for a little while so that anybody who needs prayer, healing, direction, freedom, the lifting of a burden, can can receive prayer. While I pray, if the elders would come forward to help uh, with communion, let me pray for us. Let me just encourage you. Close your eyes just for a second. Let me encourage you right now to just open your heart up and your life to the truth that God loves you, that he loves you so much that he gave his only son to die for us, that because of him we have life, abundant life, that he loves us more than we can even we can even imagine. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that your body was broken, your blood was shed, and that it was it was more than just for a purpose. It was it was for everything. It was for restoration of us, for the people of God, for the created order. Lord, we thank you. Lord, I pray right now as we come to the table of the Lord that we would receive this. And and this would not just be some religious exercise we go through. But there would be a reality in the bread of your presence. The receiving of the cup that we would we would receive from you, dear Lord. God, we thank you. Spirit of God, move among us. Speak truth and life. For those who need healing, touch them physically. For those who need direction, give them wisdom. For those who need a lifting of a burden, break it off of them right now. Whatever, Lord, will you just come and confess what we have to offer, Lord, is our need. Thank you for touching us and meeting us. In Jesus' name, amen. Come to the table.